Let's uh, go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we give thanks this morning that we can sing that in Christ we are your true children. Father, that we are found to be whole and complete in Christ. That we are filled with the vision of Him in all that we do. And so, Father, as we look to Your Word today, may we seek to have Christ as our vision. May Your Word be the true wisdom for us. May it enlighten us, being a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. May it guide and direct our steps, Lord, in what we consider in these moments, and may we take it with us throughout this week that it may be the lamp and light to our feet with our families, with our co-workers, with our friends, Lord, in all our, in all our choices this week. May we have your word as our counselor. Father, may we long for it as the psalmist longs for it, as what we read in Psalm 119. And Father, may we long for it as the deer longs for water. Father, work in our midst as we open the bread of life that points us to your Son who is the way, the truth, and the life. We pray these things, Father, in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. We are nearing the end of 1 Peter. And once we finished 1 Peter, uh, guess what? Peter wrote a second epistle for us to read, and we'll be looking at First Peter, or 2 Peter once we finish this up. But as we come to the end of 1 Peter, Peter sort of closes things by focusing us on a very essential attribute of what a Christian is supposed to be. Again, we've been talking about the path of a pilgrim. Peter writes this book to strangers and foreigners, to exiles, to those who don't belong here on this earth. And he relates a number of different things that are to be evident in our lives that show that we don't belong here on this earth. I, again, I think First Peter can sort of be summed up in that old uh, West Virginia backwoods song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Uh, it really brings out the idea of what Peter is pointing us to. And as he closes, as we come to the end of this first letter, he points us to a necessary um, attitude that we're to have as pilgrims. We, as pilgrims, are to be known as humble people. So this morning, we're going to look at the humble pilgrim. Humility is not really a virtue that's often considered something to be striven, stro- strove for in our society today. Um, all you have to do is, is turn on the news, watch a sports program, and you can see that humility really isn't sort of the thing that people strive for. And yet it becomes one of the most important aspects of what we are to be and who we are to be as Christians. 
English theologian, uh, Anglican author years ago, J.C. Ryle, wrote this about humility. He says, let us study humility. This is the grace with which all must begin who would be saved. We have no true religion about us until we cast away our high thoughts and feel ourselves sinners. This is the grace which all saints may follow after and which none have any excuse for neglecting. All God's children have not gifts or money or time to work or a wide sphere sphere of usefulness, but all may be humble. This is the grace above all which will appear most beautiful in our latter end. Boy, Ryle seems to think that humility is rather important, doesn't he? Is he overstating the case here? Is he, is he sort of speaking flower, flowerly language, or is he being um, exorbitant in the way he describes this? Is it truly, as he describes, a prerequisite for salvation? He calls us to study humility. Is it really necessary for us to study humility? Is it true that we have no excuse for not pursuing it and neglecting it. Is humility really as important as Ryle says it is? And Peter agrees. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 3, or I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to actually begin our reading in verse 5 because verse 5 sets us up for verse 6 through 11. Likewise, You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Then clothe yourselves. And how many people is he giving this command to? All of you. All of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Why? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Ryle, I think, captures Peter's focus here. Now here's the problem. Are we prone to be humble people? No, we're prone to haughtiness. We're prone to think high thoughts of ourselves. I like how Ryle describes that here in this quote, that we are to cast away our high thoughts because we naturally think 
we're pretty good. We tend to be very prideful. And Peter is going to reveal some ways that it subtly shows itself in our lives, that pride can lead us into all sorts of damaging ways in which we deal with things in our life. And so we who do not belong in this world, one way we show that is by being humble. And so what Peter is going to call us to is we're going to look over this in the next week or so, maybe two weeks, well, definitely two weeks, maybe longer, we'll see, that you must walk the pilgrim pathway with humility. You must walk the pilgrim pathway with humility. Pride is not an option for the Christian. In fact, one of the things that we look at is, as verse 6 begins here, humble yourselves therefore, Peter is drawing upon what he had just said in verse 5. So whenever you see a therefore in the Scripture, you're supposed to look and see what it's there for. And it generally is connecting the thoughts of two different sections. And so he says, humble yourselves therefore. Well, why is he saying therefore? Well, look at what Peter said, that we are to all of us clothe ourselves with humility. And again, I I reiterated this a couple weeks ago when we looked over verse 5. That idea of clothe is the idea of putting on clothing in the same way you put on clothing to go out into the world every day. That you're not prepared for the day unless you have actually put on the clothing you need for that day. So I remember Thursday, I was beginning to work on this, and it was a very rainy day on Thursday. And so when I went out the door, I made sure that I grabbed my rain jacket if I hadn't grabbed my rain jacket, it was pouring down rain as I was walking to my truck. It would have been, I would have been soaked. I wouldn't have been prepared for the day if I hadn't grabbed my rain jacket. That's the same idea. You're not prepared to walk the path of a pilgrim unless you are putting on humility daily. You're not ready for your Christian walk every day unless you begin it by putting on that call to humility. And then he gives us a very strong reason why we should do this. How does God respond to the prideful person? God opposes the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. Listen, God does not tolerate pride. Proverbs chapter 6 says that there are six things that the Lord hates Seven that are an abomination to him. What's the first thing of this list that God hates? Haughty eyes, pride. So, we must look at the necessity, the importance of this call to humility. And so there are several things I want us to consider the next couple weeks. And the first is that the humble pilgrim looks to God's power. The humble pilgrim looks to God's power. Now look at what he says here. And and what we see about this is, first of all, a humble pilgrim who has humility, it sees God clearly. Notice what he says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. 
The conclusion that Peter draws when we're considering that God opposes pride but gives grace to the humble is be humble. How do we do that? Well, it begins by recognizing the power and the might that God Himself has. Christians are to be known as these humble people, and they are known as humble people because they know the power of the God they serve. They recognize that as we stand before a holy and righteous and all-powerful and all-knowing and, and a God who exists eternally, that we don't compare at all before Him. We have nothing to be prideful of in His presence. And so Peter focuses us on that that we would understand the mighty hand of God. Now, here's the reality of what he's calling us to do here. This term, mighty hand, is used throughout the Old Testament, the, the Greek, in the Greek Old Testament, um, to refer to God's gracious acts for his people or the way in which he displays his magnificent power. When God shows his power, it is humbling. For us. Now, we can listen to what Peter is saying here in verse 6 and willingly humble ourselves, or God will take his mighty hand and humble us himself. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 8 through 2. Notice this is an indictment against Israel. And again, in Isaiah chapter 9, this is coming right on the heels of God promising that He would send a wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There's actually a great display of humility in God sending His Son. Right? Christ humbled Himself and was found in fashion as a man. So what is Israel in contrast to the humility that God Himself shows, what is Israel like? Notice what He says. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Israel looked to themselves as the end-all, be-all of the ones that were going to rebuild what had been destroyed. And they said, well, we're we're not just going to put up bricks, we're going to put up elegant bricks. Bricks that are going to show off our craftsmanship. Even though the sycamores have fallen, we're going to put cedars in their place. We will do this. And they said it, as God says, in the pride and arrogance of their hearts. So what does God choose to do? He seeks to humble them. He raises up the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east, the Philistines on the west, devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. What does God do to the arrogant and the prideful? He humbles them, and that humility that He brings is severe. Another example of this is King Nebuchadnezzar. We know this story very well. Nebuchadnezzar is standing on his porch or standing out looking over all that he has. 
And all this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, now notice what he looked. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power on a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Boy, those are really dangerous words to say in front of a holy and righteous God. To live for the glory of your majesty. What does God do? Then, while these words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. If we were to continue reading in that passage, Nebuchadnezzar goes and he lives like a wild animal. It says the, the hair grew on his body like, like feathers and his nails grew like talons and he, he ate the grass of the field like a beast. He was humiliated by God because he did not seek humility himself And at the end of that, when his reason returns to him, he responds by praising the majesty and sovereignty and power of God. Now praise God for that. You have a heathen, wicked, Babylonian king who praises Yahweh as the sovereign of the universe. But he went through a path of great humility to do that. So when Peter here, in 1 Peter Chapter 5, verse 6, calls us to humble ourselves. He reminds us that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. It is truly better to humble yourself than to be humbled by God's power. This mighty hand of God, as I mentioned, is used in the Old Testament to refer to Uh, in 68 times, to show God's power in saving His people. Exodus 3.19 But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a what? Mighty hand. Deuteronomy 4.34 He says, Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for Himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, and by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great deeds of terror all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in Daniel 9 15 oh now O Lord our God who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself at this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly I, I implore you to read Daniel 9 it is a great rebuke Because Israel in Daniel 9 looks exactly like the church today. That's a sermon for another time. God's mighty hand is used to save His 
people. Now, when when Peter uses the term that's used here for mighty hand of God, it clearly is going to call the reader's attention back to how God saved Israel by His great power. And there's a reality here that we have to come to recognize is that God's power is used for our good by His grace. God uses this mighty power that is unmatched in the universe to save us. To bring us to Himself. Of course, we know that as in the Old Testament, God delivers Israel out of Egypt. That is a foreshadowing of how God delivers us out of the darkness of this world. We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. We're strangers and pilgrims and foreigners. Why don't we belong in this world? Because God has saved us with His mighty hand. Now what could be a greater slight? What could be a greater offense to a God who saves with His mighty hand so that we would be a prideful people? How dare we? How dare we think that we can look to ourselves and prop ourselves up in pride when it is God's mighty hand that has saved us. We all know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and it cuts at any idea of pride in the life of a Christian. We've been saved by what? By grace. Who does God give grace to? The proud? The humble. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It is not a result of your works so that you would not what? Boast. Now here's the thing. We love to talk about justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone. We, we love to talk about that as it, as it separates us from the error that teaches, every other religion teaches, that you have to earn your way to heaven. We love that. We love that truth. We stand for it in in the tradition of the Reformers and we trumpet loud, faith alone. And yet we say that and then we live haughty and prideful lives. Something's not connecting when that happens. I dare say that some of the people I know who speak the loudest about justification by faith alone and the sovereignty of God and salvation are some of the most arrogant and prideful people and something's not connecting there. God saved us by His grace through faith so that we would not boast. Why? Because we see God clearly. When we see the mighty hand of God that is outstretched to us to save us from our wretched condition as sinners. When we see the mighty hand of God that comes to us who have rebelled against Him and yet in His grace He saves us. When we see the mighty hand of God that is shown in Christ, the creator of the universe, coming, and as we just celebrated, being born in a manger in Bethlehem. 
And not only that, but he humbled himself even more and became obedient to what? Death. And not just any death. What type of death? Death on a cross. The people in the world at that time saw Christ on Golgotha and they mocked and taunted him and they viewed him as nothing more than a common criminal as he was crucified between two robbers. And he did this to save us. He did this to demonstrate his glorious power. He did this to bring us to him. How dare we be prideful? How dare we seek arrogance? Peter's words should cut deep into our hearts and should cause us to evaluate how we live our lives before other people. What arrogant thing have you said this past week? What prideful thought have you had? In what way have you exalted yourself rather than exalting Christ? If we're struggling with pride, haughtiness, and arrogance, and I think every single person here, and if you're watching online, you've dealt with it as well. We all recognize we are prideful. The quickest and easiest way is to look to the mighty hand of God that has redeemed us. So humility sees God clearly. But then secondly, humility trusts God's plan. Humility trusts God's plan. Notice what he says again in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you few things to note here. First of all, we do not seek humility simply for humility's sake alone. We're not coming to just be debasing ourselves over and over again. Rather, we're looking to see that God will be the one who will exalt us. And that exaltation will come not because of what we have done, but when Christ appears. We will appear with Him in glory. All our hope for exaltation is bound up in the glory of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. If your hope for glory is in yourself, you have no glory. But if your hope for glory is in Jesus Christ, you have the glory of the God of the universe given to you by His grace. Which is a better glory to have? And so we look to recognize God is the one who exalts us. But notice, He exalts us at what? The proper time. He exalts us at the proper time. Now this begins with understanding that we are trusting and resting in God's plan. We say with Isaiah 59, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, and his ear is not dull that it cannot hear. 
God will save. He will bring about the completion of our salvation. Christ is coming again. Come, Lord Jesus. And we pray for that, that His glory may be manifest and that when He appears, we will be like Him. For we'll see Him as He is. How we yearn for that. How we yearn for that full and complete consummation of our salvation. But it hasn't happened yet. It's not been decades. It's not been centuries. It's been millennia since Jesus said He was coming back. We have to recognize that there is nothing, nothing that can stop and stay God's mighty hand to save. Nothing. And so we humbly wait upon God's mighty hand to act. Again, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, He can use that mighty hand to exalt you. And so that glory that we seek to have in Christ, that, as Paul tells Titus, that thing that is our blessed hope, the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We wait patiently for it. Now, here's the thing. Pride brings about impatience. Pride brings about impatience. We look at our situation and we say, God, you should do this for who? Me. You should exalt me now. And we become impatient with how God is working. And so what sometimes tends to happen is rather than waiting patiently on the Lord, we tend to take things into, not not leaving them to the mighty hand of God, but we take them and put them into whose hands? Our hands. There are two examples of this in the Old Testament. First is the golden calf. Was that a a good thing that Israel did with the golden calf? I think we all know that was absolutely horrific idolatry. What was the catalyst for that idolatry? They were waiting. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! And then the ridiculousness of this statement is apparent. Make us gods. Like, do you not recognize how foolish that sounds? Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Look, they became impatient. They didn't wait for the proper time. And as a result of their impatience, they, instead of humbly waiting for the Lord to act, they looked to themselves. And they said, oh, well, we can make God. What arrogance. What arrogance. If we were to continue reading, what we actually find is Aaron points to this golden calf and he calls this calf the God that delivered them from Egypt. So that now they 
place themselves over God. Because if they're the ones who made this God, and this God is the one who delivered them, then really whose hand delivered them from Egypt? Their own. God is on the mountain giving the law to Moses, and he sees this happening, and he says to Moses, let me alone that I may consume them with my wrath. Not only that, but the bronze serpent. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. Again, why, why did this happen? Israel became impatient. It says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became what? Impatient. They didn't wait for the proper time. They became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. All right? Notice how impatience is driven by pride. Who are these Israelites to speak against God? Think of it. Who do they think they are? The arrogance that's displayed there. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food. There's no water. We loathe this worthless food. What was the worthless food that they loathed? Manna from heaven. So what does God do? Sends fiery serpents. He sends fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And so the people come to Moses and they say, we have sinned. Pretty obvious statement from Scripture. How have they sinned? We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent serpent, and set it on a pole, and everyone who was bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Prideful in thinking they could demand something of God. Pride that they could speak against God. And so what did God do? Rather than humbling themselves, He had to humble them with His mighty hand. All driven by impatience. What a wonderful picture of how we should respond when we are humbled by God. We look to Christ, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. How do we rectify our prideful rebellion against Christ? We look to Him in faith. We find hope in Him. And then we wait. Because Peter has said, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that God will, at the proper time, what will He do for those who have humbled themselves under His mighty hand? He will exalt you. 
As the psalmist says in Psalm 40, I waited, what? Patiently for the Lord. And he inclined to me and heard my cry. So the humble pilgrim looks to God's power. Listen, there is great hope in the power of God. Great hope in his power. He saves with His mighty hand. He gives grace to the humble. And He exalts us at the proper time. But He only gives that grace to the humble. He opposes those who are proud. The reality of how we come to faith in Jesus Christ is that we must recognize that we have no right to come to him because we are ruined sinners because we have cast off dependence upon him looking to him and we have in our own pride followed our own way but our Christ comes humbly and the Lord lays on him the iniquity of us all so that we can come broken, ruined by the fall, and find a God who saves with a mighty hand. And that we now wait, faithfully trusting in His plan, knowing that at the proper time, He will exalt us. So the humble pilgrim looks to God's power. But secondly... The humble pilgrim rests in God's care. As we humble ourselves, so this is still one sentence here. All right, what are we doing in that act of humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God and waiting for that proper time for Him to exalt us? Because here's the reality we're waiting for God to exalt us, but as we're waiting, what do we have in our lives? Anxieties and cares. We're waiting. We know. We trust, Lord, that you're going to come, but we still got to walk through this world that we don't belong in. And it's difficult. So what are we supposed to do as we wait? Well, God not only promises to exalt us in the proper time, He also promises to care for us as we wait. What an amazing Savior. What an amazing King. And so this humility at first results in dependence on God. Look at verse 7. Casting all your cares or casting all your anxieties on Him. Now, he talks and we, we talk a lot about, particularly in our day and age, about anxiety. Our lives are filled with anxiety. How do we how do we process what Peter is telling us here? What was he saying? Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I think sometimes we've treated this particular passage in a way that has been not helpful but harmful to people who struggle with anxiety. You know, so you talk to somebody, hey, I'm really worrying about something. Well, cast all your anxieties on him for he cares for you. And then they sort of leave and you're sort of like, okay. 
Now, I understand at times people are doing that to genuinely point you to a hopeful truth from God's word, and that is true. And what Peter is saying here, he does cut at something that I don't think we generally think about that often that lies at the root of anxiety. See, oftentimes we have in our lives root sins and fruit sins. Root sins are the things that cause the fruit, but what do we generally see? We see the fruit. It's sort of like the check engine light that goes on on your car. You know, check engine light goes on in my car. I can go in there and I can pull the fuse that has that light go on and I don't see the check engine light anymore, right? But does the problem fixed? No, I'm driving down the road and next thing I know, poof of smoke, car stops and I'm pulling out my AAA card. So anxiety is a fruit, but what is that fruit of? And You know, if we look in context of what Peter is saying, at the root of anxiety, there is, at some level, pride in ourselves. We often carry the weight of our anxieties, and when we do that, we are carrying something that God never intends for us to carry. What are we to do with our anxieties? Are we to cast them on ourselves? Cast them on Him. Now, pride can have many manifestations. When we think of pride, we think of arrogance. We think of the showmanship of a football player or a basketball player or a baseball player. But I think we also have to tenderly recognize that there is underneath the anxieties we struggle with an idea that, well, I am the one who has to handle this situation. See, we also have to recognize that anxiety is most always the result of fear. We're fearful of something. We're fearful of the consequences of whatever situation we may be placed into. And, and here's where the pride aspect comes into place. We're fearful that we won't be able to handle it. And ultimately, when we take that upon ourselves, we're saying that we can't, we think, we fool ourselves into thinking we can handle it. But Peter here is telling us, look, don't think that God is calling you to handle all the things that bring you anxiety in your life. He's not. He's calling you to take those anxieties and place them where? On Him. Now, this is hard. This is very hard. It's so hard that even the Apostle Paul admits his failure to some degree in this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he talks about, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. And he says... We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. So, first of all, let me just recognize a lie that is often said out there. You'll see it on Facebook posts. You'll see it on tweets and and little flowery things. God will never give you more than you can handle. That's a lie. God often gives us more than we can handle. Why? I, I love that you all laughed at that because it's so evident that that's not true. But why does he do that? 
Well, notice what Paul says here. Look at how bad this was for Paul. He was so utterly burdened beyond his strength that he despaired of life itself. Now, the situation that's described here is likely referring to the situation in which a mob comes in and grabs and grabs some of the disciples, but not Paul. Paul is actually taken out of the situation. They rush into a, uh, in Asia Minor, they rush into a Colosseum, and they're going to, this mob is going to lynch some of the disciples. And Paul is burdened with the anxiety of that situation because these people were following him as he was preaching the gospel. And, and he feels a responsibility for them. I mean, he is, he is burdened with great anxiety about what's happening. And that anxiety got so bad that he despaired of life itself. I can't think of a better explanation of what depression looks like than that. He says, indeed, we felt that we who were not in that Colosseum, that they had received the sentence of death themselves. So, look, Paul is just overwhelmed by this situation. Now, Paul, by God's grace, is able to see a purpose in that anxiety. Notice what he says, but that, that whole thing, that whole thing was purposed to make us rely, and then here's the key, not on ourselves, but on God. That's exactly what Peter is calling us to do here. Cast your anxieties on Him. Don't Take the weight of life on yourself. Cast it on Christ. Remember, you're humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. Can God handle your anxieties? Yes. And notice how Paul points to how that's demonstrated. God, who does what? Raises the dead. Paul despaired of life itself. He felt that the sentence of death was upon him, but he recognized that he could put his faith, his confidence, his hope completely in Christ so that this God, who even if he died, would raise him from the dead. And then notice what God does. This mighty hand of God, He delivered us from such deadly peril, and He will deliver us. Now this is, I love what Paul says here. God delivered him and then that was it, right? Paul didn't have any other problems or anxieties in his life again, right? No. But he had faith that just as God had delivered him before, he would ultimately deliver him again. And so what does he say? On him we have set our what? Hope. We've set our hope. You know what the opposite of anxiety is? It's hope. The opposite of depression is hope. When anxiety drives us into depression and despair of life like it did the Apostle Paul here, he wasn't seeing any hope. Where's the hope that Peter points us to here? 
Cast all your anxieties on Him. Why? Why should we cast our anxieties on God? Look at the end of verse 7. Because He, what? Cares for you. Oh, how this should floor us. Humility results in dependence on God, and humility finds comfort in God's posture towards His people. He cares for you. What a wonderful hope. We should cast our anxieties upon God because He loves us. The term here for care has the idea of being concerned for someone, caring for their well-being. When we come to the Lord and we cast our anxieties upon Him, we're coming to someone who cares for us, who treats us with kindness and gentleness. I mean, if you think about the abundant grace of God as we humble ourselves, we recognize, do we deserve God's care? No. We deserve His everlasting wrath. And yet, as we recognize that by God's grace working through the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we humble ourselves and we bow before Him as our Savior and our Lord, He takes us and cares for us. So that Jesus can pray in John 17 that we would know the love that the Father has for the Son. That by faith in Christ, we are able to, in some amazing, mystical way, experience the love of the Father for the love of the, that the Father has for the Son. That is the type of care that God has for us. And so this means that God will provide exactly what we need when we need it, and He gives everything that we need. Again, Paul with the thorn in his flesh. He prayed three times, take it away, take it away, take it away. Did God take away the thorn in the flesh? No. But He gave him His grace sufficient. And so what Paul recognizes there is, I will more gladly boast in my weakness so that he can have more of God's grace. As Jesus says in Matthew 7, 11, look, the a son comes to his father, asks for bread, asks for fish. The father's not going to give him a stone or a serpent. And we're evil. So here's the comparison. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children who you care for, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what kind of things? Good things to those who ask Him. As the psalmist says in Psalm 47, As for me, I am poor and needy humility, but the Lord takes thought for me. Wow. God takes thought for the humble. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. 
that, that actually he finds a driving force to cry out even more to God as he humbles himself under his mighty hand. And there's even great hope that even when we, in the weakness of our faith, are filled with despair and anxiety, we have a Christ who is gentle and lowly. He doesn't break a bruised reed. I think this is important as I'm sure many of you here, as I myself have at times, struggle with anxiety, worry, cares of this world. The very recognition that we struggle with that is the first step to humility. And as we humble ourselves and we come before our God, Christ does not come upon us with harshness when we deal with it. He comes upon us with loving care. How do I know this? Look at how he treats his disciples in Mark 4. Mark 4, 35 through 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. So this is the disciples heading out on a boat, leaving the crowds and going to the other side of uh, the Sea of Galilee. And of course, there were other boats that were following him. And then what happens? A great windstorm arose. The waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But what is Jesus doing? He's in the stern of the, shirt, of the ship, asleep on the cushion. I like how he says the cushion. It means there's only one cushion in there. And so, here's the disciples, big storm tossing them back and forth, and you know, if I was in that situation, I would be worried that we're going to sink, right? Lots of anxiety there. You're in the middle of the, of the Sea of Galilee, issues going on. You know, maybe we should be concerned about this. And so the disciples go down in the ship. They woke him. They said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Well, Peter has already answered that question for us. Why do we cast our anxieties upon him? Because he what? He cares for us. And so Jesus gets up, and he awakes, and then I love who he rebukes, at least strongly. He doesn't rebuke the disciples. He rebukes the wind. And he says to the sea, Peace be still. And what happened? The wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He showed his mighty hand. And then he turns to his disciples. When, this had, when the wind had ceased and there was a great calm, he said to them, and then he comes as the gentle and lowly shepherd looking to his disciples and he says, why are you so afraid? That's a question that we all need to face when we're filled with anxiety. Why are we so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus puts his finger on the root problem of our worry and our care. It is a lack of faith in him. And notice the response of 
the disciples, they were filled with great fear. Not fear of their circumstances, but fear of the Lord. And they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Look, I I don't know what anxiety or issue you may be facing today. I don't know what worries are on your hearts this morning. But you come to a God who has the power to rebuke and to control every circumstance in your life. And this God cares for you. He loves you eternally. So what should we do? What should we do with those anxieties? Cast them on Him. Humbly come and seek hope in the mighty hand of God who promises to one day at the proper time exalt us. And as we wait for that day, we cast our anxieties on Him because He cares for us. Let's pray. Father, Lord, thank You that You are a kind and compassionate and loving God and that You care for us. Father, by Your grace, may You humble us so that we would receive more of that grace as we look to Your mighty hand that saves. Father, may we cast our anxieties on You knowing that you care for us. We pray this in Christ's